the beginning of our Good Enough Parenting Workshop. Hello, everyone. I'm really to have you guys here, and it is a privilege. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Um, uh, it's just a great privilege for us to be able to share with you um, all of the amazing things that we've been able to benefit from this program. So thank you for being here, for you know, just even taking the time. It is a huge commitment, um, and our hope is just really to um, to help you know to help you guys uh, really enjoy the blessing of the families that you have. All right. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, just so you know a little bit about us. Let's see. Sorry. So this would be, for those of you who don't know us, this would be interesting for Christy and I. Did it work? For Christy and I, because we've never sort of done this together. I've done speaking and things, and so has she, but never together. So should be great. So just if you don't know, this is our family. Uh, I'm Mike Steffen. Uh, this is Christy Steffen. Uh, we've been married for 21 years. We have three kids. Uh, we have Jessica, who's 16, uh, Naomi, who's 14, and Sophia, who's 10. So, the good news is, is we are in the thick of it with you. <laughs> That's the good news. Uh, I, we can't sit here and go, well, our kids are already in their 20s and 30s, and and this is our total life experience, although we, we do have some experience to share. But the good news is we're learning along with you, and uh, we are actually learned quite a bit. Even if, I was applying it even this morning. I was telling Amelia, I said, you know, it's classic. We're going to give a parenting workshop. And so we're not going to have stories from 10 years ago. We're going to have stories from 10 hours ago. <laughs> so we're going to have lots of those stories as they sort of come up. Uh, this is our family. Um, here we go. Sorry. Clicker's not working. Okay, there's a schedule. Uh, I, I want to go through this because this reminds me to let you guys know that we super appreciate the time and effort that you're going to take. Now, I was thinking about this today as I was talking to my friend Kevin Batchelor. I was thinking, wow, first day of the NFL, prime games going on right now. The morning game is over. The afternoon game is about to start, and you guys are here for, parent, for parenting. You could not have made a better decision for those NFL fans because really this is, what, this is going to affect the lives of you and your children forever. So thank you so much for coming. That's sort of the schedule. It's going to be from 2 to 4.30 and we're committed to starting on time and ending on time. And honestly, I'm really committed to ending on time. That's really our goal because we know that you guys are sacrificing to be here. Uh, just a few important things to remember. Um, you guys all should have received some emails. And part of the emails, you would have got some attachments. These are the attachments. We're not going to be printing them out in this new age of uh, conservation, but you can print them out so you can bring the attachments if you want. There's um, different things on there that you can look at. In addition to that, the book. There is a book which was part of the registration fee called Good Enough Parenting. Some of you may already have the book. Uh, due to some sort of shipping uh, issues, uh, the book will be coming this week. Uh, so you'll be getting your books next week. Uh, speaking of the book, uh, well, I'd recommend you read it if you can. It's not required. However, there's a lot of stuff in the book that you're really going to benefit from. So if you do have the time, even not in the next nine weeks, but uh, whenever you can, I would really recommend you read through it. Um, the other thing we were recommending for this class is, you know, some classes, we, especially when you're dealing with a lot of sort of emotional stuff, parenting stuff, you have groups that are formed. We're not forming groups or anything like that. But we would recommend that you get together with another couple or another two couples to sort of discuss some of these things. Because you'll find out 
um, that there's a lot of stuff in here that you're going to want to discuss, really talk through. It's awesome to if your spouse, if you're married, but this is things you're going to want to talk through with people. Uh, you will see the outlines, and also remember that there's uh, some note cards, which I believe are in the back. So if you have any questions, uh, please just write down your questions on the note card, and we'll be addressing those at the last class. Uh, there's, so, there's a lot of material, so we're going to not do questions at the time. Okay, so we're going to get right into it. Uh, Jeffrey, here we go, Jeffrey Young uh, wrote this quote. He, he was a, one of the primary developers who work with John and Karen Louie. I should mention John and Karen Louie wrote the book. Uh, they work with Jeffrey Young, who is a psychiatrist uh, who formed this thing called schema therapy. And so Jeffrey Young said, in a world of too much information, good enough parenting uses movies to teach parents how to meet core needs. And at the same time, how to avoid passing down their own dysfunctional behaviors. Schema therapy has been successful with adults, but I've always wanted to see someone do something in preventing schemas or life traps in children. And here it is. Now, what does that mean? Well, I actually found another quote, which I liked a little bit more. Frederick Douglass said this, it is easier to build a strong child than repair a broken man. And to me, that sort of capsulized what we're doing here. We're here to build strong children. So that we've all been broken, we all understand that, but we're here to build strong children. And uh, actually, I was at a, a Well Baby it's a press conference I was at, and there was a congresswoman there who's actually the first Latina to be, admit, to be voted into Congress. Her name is Congresswoman uh, Royal Allard. And she said this during the thing as I'm thinking good enough parenting and everything else, and I'm just sitting there because I'm a physician and I'm at this conference. And she said, every new mother is worried about not being good enough. And so I think it, this is really going to hit a need for all of us. Okay, the first movie clip. So we're okay. So we're going to start off with a um, a video clip here uh, from a movie that was from 1980. So I was still in elementary school at the time, a long time ago. Um, but it was an award-winning film, won Best Picture, uh, Best Director, and the young man in the film, uh, which was Timothy Hutton, he won Best Supporting Actor. Um, and it's about an ordinary family in an ordinary town, a nice neighborhood, nice schools, and all of that. So we're just going to see the intro.
so you can see, just a, it's a nice little suburb outside of Chicago, and uh, just very ordinary. And then um, they have like nice schools, nice homes, and the boy there, the the son, he's in the choir, he's on the swim team. Um, and so then we're going to look at a clip about uh, with the parents going out on a date. Yeah. How's the show? Trouble sleeping? No. You sure? Mm-hmm. Were you in the midnight oil? Yeah. Okay. Have you thought about calling that doctor? No. Well, the month's up. I think we should stick to the plan. The plan was if I had to call. Yeah. Okay. Don't worry about it. Get some sleep. By the way, I'm working on those Michigan State So, okay, so nice house, you know, very ordinary family to, um, you know, the parents and the little, and the son. And, um, you know, the father has a good job and they have fun with friends. So you go, so what, what's the problem there? Everything seems fine. And, and that's the point is that, yeah, a lot of times everything looks fine. So we'll learn more about this family a little bit later. Um, and, uh. Oh, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, even the parents have been married a while. You know, they still have a nice romantic relationship. So there you go. Oh, next, next slide. Okay, self-esteem story. Um, okay, so when you get the book, you'll look at the introduction in the book. Uh, John and Karen Louie want to make, uh, uh, you know, they want to make this point that our parenting really matters. And so on page three of the book, you'll read a story that Karen tells. And I remember her sharing it with us at the facilitator's workshop. 
And she was talking to her son, David, who was 11 years old at the time. And she was telling him, I'm gonna, you know, your dad and I are going to do this talk on, you know, self-esteem. So I have some questions for you. So she said, so David, what would you do if a friend at school told you you were stupid? So he laughed and he said, well, I'd tell him he's stupid. <laughs> so she goes, okay. So what would you do if your teacher told you you were stupid? So he smiled and said, well, I probably wouldn't tell him he's stupid but I would think it. <laughs> so then she goes, okay, so let me ask you one more question. What would you do if I told you you were stupid? So then he, you know, stopped smiling. He got a little quiet, put his head down and said, well, I'd be very mad, but I might believe you. And she just explained how her heart pounded to hear him say that. Um, and just wanted to emphasize the point that the messages we give our kids, whether they're intentional or, um, or subtle, explicit, implicit, uh, these messages are things that our kids hold on to um, throughout their lives. And so it's really important to remember that our parenting matters, which is why we're all here today, right? So what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of go through the model. Uh, this is a model called Good Enough Parenting, as we said, this, uh, developed by John and Karen Louie. And now I think you guys might have a hard time seeing this, as I was looking up earlier, but basically, let me see if this works, there you go. So if someone's born, and there's sort of two pathways you can go through. You can go through sort of a good enough parenting pathway, meaning you're meeting the needs of your kids. And we're going to talk a lot about core emotional needs. So that's going to have an effect on them. And then there's going to be the, the parent's marriage, the environment, and temperament. And then hopefully what our goal is is a healthy outcome, sort of a healthier outcome. We all understand none of us are perfect parents. We will never have perfect kids. Uh, we're all going to have our issues, but hopefully we're going to have less issues and we'll have a healthy outcome. The other pathway is empathy, and then you go through exasperation interactions. Um, if I mispronounce that word, I apologize most of the time, but exasperation interactions, and we're going to be learning about what those are. But essentially, it's not meeting your kids' core emotional needs. And I'm going to be addressing that later in the class. You still have the same effect of all these, and you get a less healthy outcome. Now, as you guys are looking at this, you may be thinking, wow, you know, I've already gone through it. I've been exasperating or my child for quite a while, so I'm kind of on this pathway a little bit. And no, we can all have that or feel like that. The good news is there's a way to fix it. Uh, through community, through repair and reconnection, and we're going to be addressing all those topics. Okay, so when you read the book, or when you look at the book, there's a lot of research. And the one thing I think is totally awesome about this class is that some of you love to read, some of you like research, and you really get into that. Okay, I kind of fall in that category, even as I was going through that this morning. I really like the research, evidence-based medicine, all this sort of stuff. I really like that. Some of you are into the movies, and that's great too. I like that as well. And it also talks about other things. But we're going to have a lot of research in the book. We're only going to be mentioning some studies. And this is one study which I found very compelling, and John Louis did as well. Okay, so there was a study started in 1975 of 600 families. And what they did is the purpose of the study was they wanted to see the association between parental mental illness, so you have a, a parent who has mental illness, versus no, no mental illness, parenting, the effect of parenting, and if that caused kids to have mental illnesses. They were trying to find the association between parental mental illness, parenting, and uh, mental illness in the child when they grow up. 
So they did this study over 18 years, so it's a big, good longitudinal study, and they found that mental illness in children was much more related to unhealthy parenting than to whether the parents themselves had suffered from mental illness. Now just so to kind of check out the thing there. So you have parents with mental illness, have an unhealthy parenting style, not meeting core emotional needs, and there's more of a development of mental illness. Now, when I say mental illness, that would be social phobias, drug abuse, maybe obsessive-compulsive obsessive -compulsive disorder, um, anxiety, depression. So that's what they found. But also they found that parents without mental illness, if they had an unhealthy parenting style, there was more of an association with mental illness in their children. Now this is significant for two reasons. It's significant, one, because it doesn't mean, like, let's say, for instance, you suffer from some sort of anxiety or depression or something like that. It doesn't mean your kids are fated to be like that. It's just an issue of how you parent. The second thing which, is, which I want you guys to think about for a second. Okay, so a number of years ago, Christy and I were, were about to take a trip, and we were going to go on a HOPE conference. For those of you who work for an organization called HOPE Worldwide, we were going to this HOPE conference. So we were flying to Cambodia. So we were leaving our three, two kids, I think at that time, we're leaving our two kids at home. And so we had to think about, okay, what if the plane crashes? What do we do? What's going to happen to our kids? So we, we went through it as most parents do. Okay, if we, if we both die in the plane crash, I know we don't be morbid, but if that were to occur, who would we want to raise our kids? Well, so we, we, we chose someone to raise our kids. But here's the question. Would you rather choose someone who is without mental illness sorry, without mental illness, but has a really unhealthy parenting style. So they're like maybe like that family. They're an ordinary family, but their parenting is really messed up. But you kind of like it because they're, they're, maybe they, they have some other aspects. Or would you choose someone who maybe they're a little depressed, maybe they have a little bit of anxiety, you know, maybe they're not totally they act the way you think they should act, but they have a great parenting style. Well, the research would suggest that your child is much more likely or likelier to have a healthier outcome if you go with the people who have the parenting style, the healthy parenting style. And again, it doesn't mean that it won't have an effect, but this is just, I thought, pretty compelling research. Again, so this is the model, and I'm, you're going to find this in the book, but this, we're going to sort of be talking about this model the way, all the way through. Now, parenting matters. There was a piece of research which I just want to mention to you. There's a group called uh, Child... I want to say it's called Child Trends. It's a nonpartisan group in Washington, D.C. And what they do is they study all the research on parenting, on raising kids at different ages. And what they want to do is find out what are things that are working and not working. And so they looked at 1,100 different studies on raising kids. And what they found that for adolescents, and this is going to seem intuitive to you because it just makes sense, for parents to have a good relationship with their kids, their kids have struggle less in terms of with drugs, they struggle less in terms of peer pressure and, and risky behaviors. For parents who model and, and sort of have limits to what their kids should do, and they, 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 they give a healthy autonomy, they allow people to, you know, they allow their kids as they get older, those kids do much better. So there's lots of research out there that suggests, and I think we all know this, that parenting matters. Now, the thing about parenting and meeting core emotional needs is it's not easy as meeting physical needs, right? Because, you know, if your child's hungry when they're a baby, they cry. If they're hungry when they're, you know, five, six years old, they say, Mom and Dad, I'm hungry. If they're hungry when they're teens, they go to the cupboard and they say, there's nothing here to eat and it's a full cupboard, <laughs> right? So the meeting physical needs. If your child says their stomach hurts, you know, you can take their temperature, you know, Chris and I do that for a living. We're both physicians, if, if you don't know us. Uh, you can do that. But meeting the emotional needs is not always as intuitive. Okay, so I have three daughters. 
And uh, quite frankly, I wasn't raised with girls. I know very little about girls, or I do now, but, but prior to that, I knew very little about girls. I have three brothers, and, and I still remember the very first time Jessica, our, our, young, our oldest, said to me, Daddy, you hurt my feelings. And I said to myself, okay, there's a lot for me to learn. So there wasn't a lot of intuition for me when it came to parenting. And a lot of the things are kind of counterintuitive. I think most of us base our intuition on parenting on what? On what our parents did. There's a, there's a phrase that, that um, John Louis talks about, which I think is a great phrase. Phrase It goes, dysfunction, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> And you know, I, you know, I could share personally, I'm sure Chrissy could as well. There's a lot of dysfunction in our families. And so I get my parenting style based on my parents. And the goal here is to improve you know, our parenting style and everyone else. Now here's the thing I want you guys to really take home. If, if you don't remember anything else, I think this is a slide I need you to remember as you leave here. Most mistakes in families are not deliberate. Very few people in this room are deliberately going to be mean to their kids. I know that happens. I work in a very busy trauma center. I understand that that occurs. However, most people in this room, if not everybody in this room, wants their kids to do well. But here's the thing. Most things that we do as parents, which are, quote, mistakes, are subtle and unintentional. We don't actually know. Sometimes we do, right? Like, you know, the other day, if I'm, like, getting mad at my kids and I raise my voice, I, that's not subtle. And it may be unintentional, maybe, but I realize I've done something wrong. But most of the things that really affect kids are subtle and unintentional. Here's Christy to talk about a movie. All right, so we're going to go back to this family and ordinary people, um, the mother, father, and the son. And I want you to consider the interactions between them uh, during this breakfast scene. Uh, but you've got to know a little bit of the underlying story behind it. Uh, they had... Um, the, there were two sons, the older son, which was like the mother's favorite, uh, and the younger son, and they were in a boating accident. The oldest son died, and so then the, the younger son went through a lot of trouble and actually tried to commit suicide. The father caught him just in the nick of time, rushed him to the hospital, and he ended up spending four months in a psychiatric hospital. So he's been out only for about a month at, uh, during this time. And you notice he was having trouble sleeping in the other uh, scene. But uh, let's look at the interaction here. We need the other half of the video. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. There you go. All right. Well, I think I'll have to explain what happens because it sort of misses the point. Yeah. 
Okay, so then what happens is the mom makes the French toast, puts it down in front of them, and it's, it's so much better to see it on the screen, but, um, but the boy says, you know, I'm not hungry. And the father's trying to be loving and saying, are you okay? You should eat, you really should eat, because apparently he's been having trouble with not only sleeping, but eating. Um, the mom is kind of, you saw her demeanor there, it's consistent throughout the whole scene. And when he says, I'm not hungry, she says, it's your favorite, I made you French toast. And he says, you know, I'm just not hungry. And immediately she goes, scoops up her French toast and starts sticking it down the drain. And the dad's like, wait, wait a minute, he'll eat, he'll eat. And she's like, well, you can't save French toast. And she's just putting it away. Um, and then she's like, oh, I've got to run, you know, blah, blah, blah. So she goes off. And I look at it and I actually can relate to this mom, like, okay, whatever, kid, you know, I'm not, I don't get you, I'm just going on my, you know, and I'm sure she could justify herself saying, you know, I made food for my family, I'm a very loving mom, an ungrateful son, what can you do, you know, but, um, but it really wasn't meeting what the son needed, and, and she had no clue, it was, her behavior was just subtle and unintentional, she felt, I'm being a loving mom here, but, um, but when you see that scene, you really don't get that. Yeah, it was interesting, and I apologize I'm about missing that. But here's what happened when we watched that scene for the first time. So Christy and I were watching this scene, and Christy's like, oh, well, what was the problem? <laughs> right? And I, you know, and I actually, I saw that scene, and I, and I kind of whispered to her, I said, man, she is so cold. <laughs> because, I mean, Mary Tyler Moore does a great job. Actually, Timothy Hutton and Mary Tyler Moore do a great job in this movie. And so, you know, if you watch it, in fact, Chris and I watched the whole movie because, you know, we're doing this talk. And, uh, but it's really intense, and, and it made us consider and it's, 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 uh, the subtle unintentionality of things because we all have blind spots. Yeah. I mean, we all do. And, and this woman, and you'll see more about her, just had a blind spot. And even with Christy and I, because, you know, we're different, and it was, it was just classic how we subtle and unintentional. So I could see Christy do something going, oh, no, honey, stop, pull back, don't say it. And, you know, she may say it. She may see me do something and like, what are you doing, Mike? Didn't you see that, Sophia? And you know what I'm saying? So most mistakes are subtle and unintentional. And I think that's, again, a key thing. And I know I'm going to keep saying it because most of us for parenting, it's personal. It's very personal. And we need to know that we are doing, we want to be good enough. Okay, so, GEP, Good Enough Parenting, Biblical Principles, we're going to talk about some of those, Schema Therapy, uh, I'm not a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, but there is something called Schema Therapy, which is, you can see on your session, uh, on your outline, Larry's going to be addressing some of those things. Uh, we're we'll be looking at research, some parenting experience. One of the things that we're going to do in the fo following classes, is we're going to have uh, some... Uh, in the book, it has a master's class. It has people who sort of intuitively or because of the way they were raised really applied a lot of these principles to their parenting styles. And the book mentions a lot of those and has some great excerpts. Well, we're fortunate that we have some who can do that as well. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to have some people share about uh, how either some kids who were parented and, and the, how it worked or vice versa. So we're going to have some parenting experience. And then we're also lucky because Larry Wong is here, and Larry's a uh, licensed marriage family uh, therapist, and he's going to be able to provide some of his clinical experience as we go through some of these talks as well. Now, our goal is to increase your awareness, your knowledge, and to provide some training because we all want to be good enough parents. Okay, here's a quiz. The best gift a father can give his children is? Okay, it's time. What else? I'm sorry? 
Love, love, time, love. Okay, good. Anything else? What else? What's that? Acceptance. Acceptance. Oh, those are awesome. Those are great. Connection. Well, this is what the research says. They did a study of four. And the best gift a father can give his children is to love their mother. And, uh, you know, I added this to the slide last night. And I think the best gift a woman can give her children is to love their father. Right? We need both. We're going to watch this movie in a minute. Okay, we're, we're going to watch this movie right now. Krista, give you the clip. All right. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, I'm on the wrong page here. Okay, so the next movie we're going to see called Catch Me If You Can is from 2002. And it was with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. You may have seen it. Um, and it is uh, about this boy who runs away at the age of 16, becomes a con man, impersonates a major airline pilot, and um, a doctor, and a lawyer. And by the time he was 18, had stolen a couple million dollars. And uh, eventually he was caught in France uh, and sentenced to 12 years of um, solitary confinement. But, uh, but we're going to see him a little earlier in the years when he is with his parents. And, um, and it's Christmas time, and it's a happy time for them. Uh, the mother and uh, father met when, uh, the, during World War II uh, when his father was in France. And when France was liberated, they had a big party for all the American soldiers. And so that's where they met. And you'll see him tell the story, which you, obviously they've told many times before. We apologize for the little bit of technical difficulty. But, um, so then a short time after that, the father's business had trouble and they lost a lot of money. Had to downsize and move into a little apartment, which was pretty you know, upsetting to the mom. Um, but we're going to see kind of the, what happens after that. Many times these decisions are left up to the court. 
courts, but that can be very expensive for any people fighting over their children. Nobody's fighting to get me friend. Wow. So when he gets up to that ticket window, he says, one ticket for Grand Central. You know, this poor guy, so devastated by the break of, of his parents, just realizing his parents are going to get divorced, that he uh, not only ran out of the house, but he never came back again uh, to the home. And he spent the next couple years living on the street as, you know, impersonating uh, different other professions and uh, stealing a lot of money through fake checks and stuff like that. But, um, you know, when you, you think, well, this is an interesting movie about a, a con man, but when you go back and look at it again, you realize that the main reason why he did all of this is because he wanted to get money for his dad to get his mom back. And that, um, you know, he thought, if I, if I just get enough money, you know, I can get my parents back together. And, um, and, and that's, you know, just how much it mattered to him how his parents were in their relationship. When I, uh, sometimes I give talks and I use movie clips and what I would, sometimes what I'll do is I'll, I'll put what I want them to see on the top of the screen. What's the one thing that the person says during the clip which I want everybody to hear? And the thing in this clip, which I, if you heard it or not, it was when the lawyer or the arbitrator says, this is boring adult business. In reality, we don't have any boring adult business in our marriages and in our homes. And that's why we talk so much while we're going to start with your marriage. Because by having a great marriage and being focused on your marriage, it's going to allow you to become a better parent. Now, just right, right there, it says Frank Abagnale. That's who the story's about. It's a true story. I think most of you know that. But uh, if you look on YouTube, Frank Abagnale. Chris and I did this after watching this movie, I think, a week and a half ago. There's this thing called Frank Abagnale Fed Talks 2013. And uh, it's him telling the story himself. And the most compelling thing about that is he talks about 
how devastating it was for his parents to get a divorce. And it wasn't this romantic, high-flying lifestyle which you see in the movie, but he said often he would cry himself to sleep at night. In the movie, they show him having discussions with his dad after he runs away. In reality, he never saw his father again. Well, after he had left, his father had a devastating accident, fell down some stairs and died. And he said his father used to come into his room every night. He had brothers and sisters in reality, but he used to come into his room every night and tell him that he loved him. So don't think that a marriage won't affect your parenting. And here's kind of why it does. Why is a good marriage important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons, uh, but least of which in terms of our children. It really builds emotional insecurity in your kids. Now, I'm not going to go through it, but if you go through your book, there's numerous studies that are cited regarding how this builds insecurity in your kids. You know, basically kids lose sleep. Kids get stressed out. If they see, you know, you have the two people in their lives that they love the most, their mom and their dad. And if they are living in fear that the people are going to get a divorce, they're going to cause them to lose sleep. Arguing, fighting, if that's sort of your, I mean, we all have arguments and fights, but if that's sort of your normal lifestyle, it's going to cause insecurity and it will affect them. The other thing about it is, okay, good, like I said, 10 hours ago, right? Actually, this wasn't 10 hours ago. This was right before uh, we came here to go to church. So maybe it was about eight hours ago. So Christy and I, uh, well, let me just rephrase that. I had an issue with Christy but I didn't mention it to Christy, um, so I sort of worked through it. But while I was going through this thing, like we were going, kind of going through this thing, um, my daughter was going to speak in church today, and she wanted to talk with me about it, but I was all focused on what I was dealing with when talking about Christy. And that's what happens with our parenting if we're not working on our marriage. Now, it can happen once in a while, that's okay. But if that's a consistent thing, you're not going to be meeting your kids' core emotional needs. And that's when we talk about poor parenting. So, research reveals, okay, here's a little thing about conflict. Okay, we all have conflict. Uh, there's two different types of conflict that we can have, and they, they've done studies about this. Again, this is in the book. We're talking destructive conflict. Now, that's conflict that's over a long period of time. That's kind of a lifestyle. That's usually not a one-time incident. Like you could argue this morning, I was just having an issue, and I worked through it and, and whatnot. But destructive conflict is carried out over a long period of time. And destructive conflict has an impact on your children. Now, they've also shown that you can have constructive conflict. So you can have conflict within your marriage that is healthy, that actually helps your kids, because there will be conflict. So if your kids see, you know, like for instance, Christy and I, if we have an issue, and they see us work it out, and they're aware of us working it out, that's going to let build security in them. And they've shown this by research. Oh, okay, well, you can have difference of opinions, you work it out and understand you're working it out, and that, that will actually help them out. Destructive conflicts are examples of those would be the ones over a long period of time, physical aggression, verbal hostility, or nonverbal Actually shown in some of the research he quotes, he talks about how if, if a kid sees their parents saying, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of negative feelings behind the I'm sorry, so it's not really resolved, that doesn't help your kids. In fact, it makes it worse. But if they see that there really is improvement and you really are sorry, that will help them. Okay, good. Good enough parenting model. So we've been talking a little about the parents' marriage. Now we're going to talk about things about why we behave the way we do. Uh, temperament, environment, and uh, we're going to talk about core emotional needs here in just a minute. Uh, okay, so temperament. Temperament is our inborn emotional makeup. It's just the way we're built. 
God made you a certain way, and that's who you are. Okay? Now, this might so those of you who know us, it won't be surprised to know that Christy and I have a different temperament. <laughs> right? We're just, we're different. If you look at our three kids, Jessica, Naomi, and Sophia all have different temperaments. Your kids, you and your spouse have different temperaments. And there is going to talk a little bit about coping styles, which is related to that. But this is just who God gave. That's who you are. Temperament all that much. In your environment. You know, you, we're all born in a certain area, we're all born in a certain place, in a certain culture. Our environment will have an effect on us. We all know about that. You know, we, you know, we look at like Christy and I, right? So I was born South Orange County. Mom and dad were married for 30 some odd years until my father died. We never had a divorce in our family. You know, kind of a, a kind of middle, upper middle class family. You know, that was kind of my environment. Christy, her, she was, uh, her mom was 18 when she was born. By the time her mom was 19, she had three kids. Her parents got a divorce when she was three years old. Her mom went through multiple different relationships. She grew up, her mom was on welfare for a while. Eventually, there's a cool story about what happened with her mom. But nevertheless, that was her environment. So we come from two totally different environments, right? So we all have our environment. Understand that will have an effect on you. Now what we're going to do before we talk about the core emotional needs is we're going to talk about the theme scripture for this class. Uh, it says, fathers, it's Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so the first part of this verse talks about what we're not to do. We're not supposed to exasperate our children, and you're going to hear a lot about that coming up. The second part talks about what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. If you look at the different, some different versions of this verse, uh, the, um, it talks a lot about bring them up. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. What does this bring them up portion of it mean? You see the same, ver same word actually in the Greek uh, in Ephesians 5.29. This is talking about marriage and sort of uh, what a man is supposed to do in terms of a marriage. It says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. So this concept of bringing up and nourishment. The Greek word is translated bring up in Ephesians 6.4 and nourishes in 5.29, but it's the same word. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means. I'm just reading the slide along with you. And it means extropha, and that means to nourish, to bring up, to nurture, to bring, and to bring their maturity. So when Paul looks at this, Paul's talking about nursing the body when you're in 529. And we all know there's going to be needs. We have spiritual needs, we have emotional needs, and those are the needs we want to train our kids to meet in our children. So the message of Ephesians 6 is do not exasperate, which we'll talk about, and also what we should do is you really need to be meeting the needs. Now, this, is a, this is, seems like a very simplistic picture, and I get that it kind of is, but I think it tells a great story. I think oftentimes the simple things... So this is just a plant, and I want you to think, take for a moment and use the metaphor. Think of your child as a plant. Now, there's a couple of good ways to think about that, because when you see a seed, unless you're Rod Scott, who's one of my best friends, uh, he, he, he could tell you what that seed's for, but if you're like me, it's a seed. And I know that if you put it in the ground and you do the right things, it'll grow and it'll become a plant. You know, when your kids are born, they're kind of a seed. You don't know what they are. You don't know what their temperament's going to be. You don't know what they're going to look like. They're just going to be who they are, and they're going to grow up. But you can have an effect on that seed, just like a plant needs air, sunlight, water, and nutrients. Any one of these things, if you take it away, the plant is not, is it one of two things. The plant's either going to die, 
Or it's going to grow, but it's not going to be plant. If it doesn't have sunlight, have air nutrients. And some plants, you know, it'll depend on what sort of what they need. Some plants need a little bit more air, a little bit more water, some need a little more nutrients. It depends on the plant. And so our kids are the same way. We need to be understanding that there's core emotional needs that all children have. Just like a plant needs air, water, nutrients, and sun, kids need these things. So what's a core emotional need? And we're going to take a break in just a minute. A core emotional need is a core need that if it's not there, it will decrease a person's well-being. So if you don't, if you don't provide it, then they're not going to be as good as they could have been. A core emotional need is something that stands alone. It means if it, it, you can't like else. It's just, it's just what it is. It cannot be part of another construct. And it also has to be universal. When, when, they, when these were sort of being developed with uh, Jeffrey Young and um, John and Karen Louie, uh, they, did, they, they looked at, fortunately, they had access to numerous different types of nationalities. So they did studies in, in, in Sweden, Australia, and the United States, and Singapore. So they, I guess they missed the continent of uh, Africa. But they sort of went through it, and they found that these core emotional needs apply everywhere. This is something that needs to be universal. A core emotional need is something that is required for healthy growth. And if you don't provide it, it's either going to hurt them or it's going to wind up hurting somebody else. Sort of, again, dysfunction, the gift that keeps on giving. Right? It's going to have an impact. It's also something you don't want to give too much or too little. You have to try to find the balance. And, and I think with each of your kids, there's going to be a balance that you're going to have to find with your children. So what are the core emotional needs? It was developed four plus one, so it's pretty easy to remember that there's four of them plus one. Uh, and here they are, connection and acceptance. You'll see the signs. Uh, health, healthy autonomy and performance, reasonable limits, and realistic expectations. And the plus one is spiritual values and community. Again, this is all on your outline, so you'll have this, so, and it's also in the book. Now, I'm going to take just a moment on this slide. So you'll see that there's a, it says emotional and then four maladaptive schema domains. Okay, so when this was developed, it actually was developed from, remember the, remember the quote by Frederick Douglass? It's easier to build a strong child than repair a broken man. Well, unfortunately, most of this research is done on broken men. And that's where these were developed. They said, okay, what are the things that kind of cause this? And as they sort of did the studies and they went through it, well, if someone has disconnected from their parents or were rejected by their parents, they develop schemas, which Larry's going to be addressing some of those. If someone has impaired autonomy as a child in performance, you know, if you have a parent who's involved in every aspect of their life until they're 40, or if you have, or the other issue would be a parent who's totally, you kid, do whatever you want, it's cool, life is awesome, you know, it'll be great, and the four, right, that's impaired autonomy sort of based on age. Impaired limits, that hopefully speaks for itself. We need to give limits to our kids. And also exaggerated expectations, either too much expectation or too little expectation. So that's how it was developed as sort of a maladaptive behavior. What John and Karen Louie did, uh, working with Jeffrey Young, is they decided, let's make this positive. Let's build a strong child. And so in order to decrease the amount of disconnection and rejection, you want to increase the amount of connection and acceptance. In order to decrease the amount of impaired autonomy, then you'll get healthy autonomy, and sort of so on and so forth. And it's interesting because the first four are sort of research-based, have been validated, 
Uh, and the fifth one is becoming research-based as they do more data. But the fifth one is something which they added because they've seen in their lives the impact of spiritual values and community. And the importance of having spiritual values and community developing a healthy child. They understand, and we're going to be talking more about that, I think, in our last class in terms of the reconnection, in terms of uh, uh, the community, the impact. I appreciate so much that there are people in this audience who don't have kids. We have people in this audience who work with our teens, people in this audience who may uh, will have kids, and they're here, which is great, because you're here because we need that community um, in order to help our kids. So with that, Let's just go through connection and acceptance, a little pictorial there. We're going to talk a lot about it. You know, happy family, playing a game, healthy autonomy, good job. You built your sandcastle all by yourself, <laughs> right? That's cool. Reasonable limits. Have we, which parent has not done this before? Okay, computer, over. Time to get off the computer. Uh, or in some cases, come on, time to get on the computer, homework, right? Reasonable limits. Uh, I love, Christy laughed at me because I just noticed this about this picture like two days ago. Um, she's still laughing. Um, it says realistic expectations. And look what she's holding. The cup, it's second place, right? Not every kid's always going to get first place. And they're like, awesome, you got second place, which is great, right? That's how we need to be, right? We need to be encouraging effort. We need not be encouraging performance. So it's kind of a cool picture. And then the spiritual values and community. Obviously, it kind of depicts the picture there, but it's, it's, a, it's a group effort with that. So what we're going to do now is we realize that uh, this is a long class and a lot of material. So we're going to be taking a 15-minute break. So what we decided to do is we figured, if you're like me, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's Sunday. I'm taking a nap. So we have caffeine and sugary type material things outside. So we'll see you back here in 15 minutes. I have a private practice now, but for a long time, I worked with what's called the transitional age youth, 16 to 25-year-olds, which is the growing high-risk population in regard to mental health. Things like suicide, cutting, uh, overdosing, um, schizophrenia, bipolar, and the sort of uh, things we might think about, depression, anxiety, all those sorts of things. I loved working with that age. I loved it. I love it. Um, and inevitably, when you work with youth, you work with? You are a sharp group. <laughs> this is going to be easy. And so um, I do have a great compassion for all of us as parents, because it's hard. Because sometimes our normal kids are crazy. <laughs> so we're going to do this together, okay? Uh, my son is 14. He's a freshman in high school. Now that's crazy. My daughter is a sixth grader at the middle school playing violin. She's so excited. And I've been married to my incredibly beautiful wife, Grace, for 20 years. So that's amazing. And she's my amazing grace. Um, here's my belief. My belief that if you paid, if you are here, then I believe you're doing your very best to be a great parent. 
I believe that with all of my heart. That is my experience. Okay? So I want us to let that sink in. You are doing your very best. Now, if you're like me, the best some days is I'm hugging, I'm kissing, I'm laughing with my kids. And the best on other days is I'm yelling, I'm slamming the door, I'm telling them everything that they don't really need to hear. But I believe I'm trying to do my best. If you can relate, I want you to be encouraged by that, okay? By, by coming, you are doing your best. The things you're going to hear doesn't mean that changes. That just means we can add a little bit more to the recipe. Okay? Looking at my notes. Clicking. Can I multitask? All right. So we got the overall view from Mike and Christy. So now we're going to look at a little bit closer at some of the more challenging things. If you want to look at the second half as I'm sort of the bad guy. Okay? So what happens when core emotional needs are not met? Kids are exasperated. Well, not yet, not yet. Thank you. You know, I'm just going to have you do it, because that's way too much for me to keep track of. Um, they're going to get exasperated, and they're going to get discouraged. Okay? Remember that. And if that happens, life traps set in. The other word that sounds highly clinical is schemas, and we'll explain that, but life traps slash schemas set in. They develop, and then, in order to deal with those life traps, coping skills start being adapted, okay? And we're going to look at that as well. Go ahead. So here is sort of the pathway, all right? Exasperation interactions. That's talking about how we interact with our kids. That's the key. That is the key to it all. And so if we have exasperation interactions, then those core needs will not be met. And if those core needs are not met, they're going to get exasperated, and then life traps set in for them. And then they have to find some coping skills to manage those life traps. Does that make sense? Okay. So let me, let me make this a little more practical. You know, when, let's go back, let's go back. So when we think about this, it's important to remember that in our day and age, we have training for many things. You have to get, you go through training to get your license, right? Driver's license. You have a pilot. If he's going to fly a plane, he has to go through training and get certified. If you want to be a marriage and family therapist, you have training. You know, all of these different things because what? Lives are in our hands. So we should be trained, right? I mean, would you walk on a plane if I said, hey, I'm the pilot, like, like our man, catch me if you can. Uh, I, I figured it out by myself. Come on aboard. Would you say, cool? No, you would not. And yet, 
parenting, we don't necessarily always associate with needing training. And yet lives are in our hands. Right? So that's sort of the gravity of it. Have I scared you? Okay, well, it'll get better. So, so here's my uh, example. I, I thought about this with this pathway that's sort of set up. You know, parenting does matter, and we have our, our children's lives in our hands. And I, I thought about one of my clients, a uh, 19-year-old boy who had bipolar. Um, really interesting. You know, he, he kind of gets ramped up, right? But when we'd have these counseling sessions, what he kept bringing up over and over is, you know, my mom gave me up to foster care when I was an infant. And you know what she says to me? We still see each other regularly. She says to me, you're so lucky. You get all your needs met because you're in the foster care system. They have to provide for you. But all he brings up in our sessions is, how does that work? This was my mother, and she just didn't want to take care of me. You know, we worked together for three years, and it wasn't every session, but that would come up regularly for him. So we have to think about that. You know, we, we have lives in our hands. Okay, let's go to the next one. So we're going to put a spiritual frame around this, like Mike and Christy said at the beginning. So Colossians 3.21, it says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become what? Discouraged. Next slide. Ephesians 6.4, the theme passage, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, why not bring them up in what? Training and the instruction of the Lord. Memorize this verse. That is your homework. I'm going to see you in church and fellowship. I'm going to ask you Ephesians 6.4. That's how serious I am. Okay? I do joke around. Just not right now. Next slide. So we're going to, so, so me, the bad guy, we're going to focus on, okay, let's focus on what not to do. All right? Do not exasperate. Next slide. So, so the amazing thing about the Bible is it has these scriptures. Uh, it doesn't have a lot, but it has scriptures about parenting. And here we've got all of these experts in the field, my field, and they talk about parenting and they talk about it and it confirms for me what the Bible says. Next slide. Look at what Draker says. A misbehaving child is a discouraged child. In a thousand subtle ways, by tone of voice and by action, we indicate to the child that we consider him inept, unskilled, and generally inferior. So if we rewind and if we were to say a misbehaving child is a, and you were to fill in the blank, what would you say? A misbehaving child is a troublemaker. A misbehaving child is, should be seen and not heard. A misbehaving child is a handful. But would you say what you've ever considered filling in the blank with discouraged? I worked at Hathaway Sycamores uh, for four years. And I loved our main motto. Our main motto in working with kids is bad behavior 
is the result of an unmet need. Bad behavior is the result of an unmet need. You know, I found that to be true 99% of the time. I also had to deal with that 1%, but 99% of the time, I found that to be very true. I'd start meeting with clients, and you know, the question that would go on in my head as I'm meeting with them week after week is, what is the unmet need? What is causing this behavior, this reactivity, punching holes in walls, which I've been to homes, and there were holes in doors and walls from the client? Those kind of things make you think. So, this is how that breaks down. When their needs aren't being met, they start feeling discouraged. So if they start feeling discouraged, they're just resourceful. Okay? I like that word. They find a way to get their needs met. And that's when we usually see behavior problems. I worked as a, at a K-8 through school. I worked in PUSD. I worked in Alhambra School District. And we'd always get referrals from the teachers because what you can't have in school is behavior problems. But usually, when I got those kids, that you, in my head, that's never the root. The root is usually something much deeper than that. Okay? So I like this quote by Drakers. Next slide. Next slide. Okay. Uh, I love this one. David Elkind. In effect, adolescents pay us back in the teen years for all the sins, real or imagined, that we have committed against them when they were children. <laughs> Take that, parents. Okay, so, so a clarification. Teen years inherently are filled with payback kind of behaviors anyway. Okay, so don't, don't freak out here. It's not, this is not all inclusive. But if their needs aren't being met, they will act out much more. Okay, you, you got your garden variety acting out. I, I mean, I've got a high schooler now, and I've got a middle schooler. Uh, you know, I, the phrase is meltdowns, you know? And so it happens anyway. But if we don't meet our kids' needs... Uh, it's way more than we can handle, right? Next slide. Okay, so we're back to this. Remember the pathway. It's important just to, just to know that, you know, this is, this is the pathway we want to try to reroute. So we're going to talk, next slide, about life traps. So what are life traps? Okay, when a core emotional need is not met, we develop... They call it maladaptive schemas. We start adapting the wrong way to the challenging situations. You know, you might think right now, oh, I'm trapped in this class. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Okay, so this is, we, 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 our kids don't get those needs met, life traps set in. And then, and what it is, is they're just entrenched beliefs that kids start getting from the messages we give them if we're not meeting their needs. And that hap when that happens early in life, they really, really start sinking in.
Okay, it, so it's, think of it as um, distortions in their understandings. It affects their thoughts, it affects their feelings, and then obviously affects their behaviors. Okay, but that's what life traps are. Next slide. Uh, the theory that uh, uh, Jeffrey Young developed says that the schemas are generally developed by the age of 10, but with traumatic experience, they, they can be caused and developed later in life as well. I've seen that. Uh, the clients I worked with, um, it's, you know, that young age is incredibly important. It's a developmental process. It's like the train has a route. And if you miss some stops, it's really hard. It, you, the train, you know, I was also an architect in my first life. Tracks, they go one direction. They just go. So it's hard to catch them up. Okay. Next slide. Okay, so what's this a map of? Blah, 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 what? It's a map of the old United States. Next slide. This is a map of the current United States. So how do we get there? Next slide. You know, you, you have an old map until you find out new information. And then with the new information, you're able to redo the map. And that's what we're going to do. Okay? So here's the old map. You know, that, that old map of the United States, it's out of scale. Uh, uh, I can't say out of shape because I, I can't see a map being out of shape, but out of scale and it's distorted, right? It wasn't accurate. We get more information and that's how we get the new map. Next slide. So here's an example of a life trap. So, Here's a young woman looking in the mirror at herself. Now, if you look at her, perfectly fine. But what does she see in the mirror? She sees something very different. And then there's a thought bubble that's connected to an interaction with her dad and says, you'll never be as good as your sister. Okay? So, so remember... It's not whether or not we've said those things. It's whether or not they're mistakes that happen. We're all human. We blow it. Or if this is a sort of lifestyle of messages that our kids get. And for this particular vignette, it happened over and over. And this is what she sees about herself. Okay? And, you know, those thoughts, they aren't, they aren't well thought out like this thought bubble says. It's just like a split second. And you see it in the mirror and you go, oh man, I'm fat. You know, and those are those distortions that life traps are comprised of. Have you ever known someone who's really smart and you compliment them on that and they say, no, I'm not really smart, right? You see a very pretty uh, woman and, and you compliment her and, and she says, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not that pretty. That's that distortion that has set in. Does that make sense? You ever seen that ugly person that thinks they're really beautiful? That's, that's a life trap. S send those people to me. Okay. See, I'm not a bad guy. I tell pretty funny jokes. Okay. Let's get serious here.
So the, dis the degree of the distortion is related to the degree that their core emotional needs are not met. So, the, so I hope that gives you some relief. You know, hey, I, I blow it all the time in, in the sense that, oh, you know, there, there are some bad days. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when it becomes the pattern of the way we interact with our kids. That's when it's a problem, okay? And it's more severe. The distortion that they have is proportional to the amount of that core emotional need not being met. Make sense? Okay, they got it. How about you guys? All right, all right, just check in. You know, I don't want to assume anything. Next slide. Okay, more research. I love research. You know, in our, just like the medical field and the mental health field, empirically based practices are important. Insurance looks at that. Okay, that was a freebie. Um, okay, life traps. So you might say, okay, what's the big deal? Life traps. Studies have shown that life traps are associated with mental health disorders. Personality disorders like borderline personality, narcissistic personality disorder, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. I, I see an OCD adult right now. I used to see a borderline. That was exciting. Um, psychiatric symptoms, depression, anxiety. There's been shown evidence that these life traps are associated with mental health issues. Next slide. Okay, here's something don't be overwhelmed by. So in, in the theory that was developed by Jeffrey Young, there are 18 life traps. So next week, there'll be a test. You'll have to know. No, just kidding. All right. You don't have to memorize it. It'll be in the book you'll get next week. It's in the handout that uh, you got. Oh, here's an announcement I forgot. So if you registered by Friday, you should have gotten an email with all the handouts. If you registered after Friday, that's okay. Uh, you need to make sure, uh, you know, it'll be in the book. Everything that's in the handout is in the book. But you can let us know at the registration if you need it, uh, if, if you did not get the handouts, and we'll email it to you, okay? But, but it's in the handouts. It's in the book. We're going to talk about them. So those 18 life traps, he divided into f the four domains. You know how Mike was looking at the four core emotional needs on this side, the... Uh, the four uh, maladaptive schemas on the other side. So these 18 are divided into the, under the umbrella of those four domains, okay? You don't even need to know that, but uh, you know, I'm a good, you know, I just wanna be thorough. So, next slide. Okay, so with life traps, forms, coping styles. Because that's what we, we have to do. We have to cope, right? So to the extent that our core emotional needs are not met, coping styles develop. Coping styles are related to temperament. Temperament, inborn. Can't do anything about it. That's why my son is one way, and my daughter is a bundle of joy the other way. <laughs> so your temperament, or so those coping styles, blah, 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 okay. Coping styles related to temperament, they determine more or less the general way we're wired to respond to stress and threats. So this unmet need becomes a stressor, okay? So the three different types of co coping styles that get triggered when life traps set in. I like the fright 
flight, and fight. That's kind of an easy way to remember it. But in the book, the terms that are used are surrender, avoidance, overcompensation. You'll see in the book for overcompensation, they interchange it with the word counterattacker. <laughs> I think that's a little more descriptive. Um, and we're going to go into these. So next slide. So we'll talk about the surrender coping style. So the message of this coping style is what my life trap is telling me about myself is true. I'm powerless to change this painful truth about myself. That's the way a surrenderer copes. They're, they're, the, they're the folks that are really nice, always apologize. They might even do, oh, sorry. You might know somebody like that. Murmur, murmur, talk amongst yourselves. Okay, next slide. So we're going to have some cartoons. Um, sometimes when you think of cartoons, they're funny. These, these might not be funny, but they help illustrate the things that we're going to talk about. So in the surrender coping style, the husband says, I told you to go and buy a 20-watt bulb, but you got the wrong one. Why do I have to tell you things over and over? Next slide. And her thought, and again, these thoughts, think of them more like split second. They're not thoughts because they've become part of our schema. I told you not to forget your lunchbox. Why are you so stupid? So she's not even listening to her husband at that point. It's, it triggers this coping style. Next slide. And she says, so the thought she actually has is, I'm stupid. It's all my fault. I'm sorry. Okay? So that's, that's the surrendered coping style. Next slide. The avoidance coping style. The message of this coping style, it's too painful and uncomfortable to hear or feel the message of my life trap. I must keep myself separate and distracted so I'm not aware of this painful truth about myself. So that is my coping style. You know, if it's too painful, I just sort of go away. <laughs> you know, my fights with my wife early in our marriage, it's funny. It, it was almost like a monologue. I mean, my wife would be talking away, talking away. Why don't you say anything, she says. Because you're right. What, is there need, what do I need to say? And I just wanted to avoid the conflict altogether. Maybe you can relate. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> it's not just me. Okay, so here's, here's an illustration of that. So husband and wife, they just had dinner with uh, his in-laws. Okay. Ho, ho, ho. Fireworks. And she, she says to him, I didn't like the fact that you didn't support me in front of your parents. You made me look like a fool. I'm sure none of us can relate to this, but we'll read it anyway. So he says, I was only trying to help you see it from their perspective. Next slide. So what he's thinking about, what gets triggered, is a, 
an association with an inter interaction when he was being scolded, let's say, by his mother. But again, it's not a thought. It's like that. Next slide. Where are you going? Let's talk. Sorry, I might be in here for a while. <laughs> That's a laugh of guilt. I know it. I, I'm a marriage and family therapist. I can tell. Um, it's kind of a funny slide, but it's true. There's actually, for avoiders, evidence shows there's physical symptoms that come with being an avoider. Ooh. Yeah, it's true. Okay, overcompensation. This is the fighter. The message of this coping style, I must fight as hard as I can to think and act as though what my life trap says about me is not true. Hmm, that might be familiar to some of us. Next slide. So here's, here's an illustration. Um, husband and wife, so husband usually comes home at seven, so you know, he works, all that sort of thing, and happens to be that this evening he worked a little bit late, comes home at eight, and his wife says, honey, I was worried it's after 8 p.m. Great wife, right? I mean, it's just a comment about you know, I was worried about you. I was hoping everything's okay. And what is his thought? You know, somehow he had failed in being competent or whatever, and it triggers this instant. And then, next slide. You should be grateful that I came home, and I'm not out of, at a karaoke lounge like my colleagues. I think, you know, any of you? Karaoke? And look at look at her expression. Where did that come from? I was worried about you. Next slide. Okay. Coping styles. Here's the thing that's important to know. You might hear all those go, oh my gosh, I have all of them. I've got to see Larry immediately after class. Yes, you do. Um, most people have one predominant type. Okay? If you know my wife, you know she's an avoider. That was a joke. Wow. I guess I'll keep my day job. So, so here's what we're going to do. A little crowd participation. You're going to turn to your spouse... And you're going to ask each other, hum, what's my coping style? Now, before you start, the rule is no fights. You know, like, oh, honey, you're, an, you're, a, you're a counter attacker. No, I'm not. You're wrong. I avoid things like the plague. So here we go. What's the rule? No fighting. You are sharp. Okay. Take one minute. Go.
Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to cut it shorter than a minute because I'm, I'm helping protect from a fight breaking out. I'm a marriage and family therapist. I know these things. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. Shh. I know. Go grab coffee afterwards and talk more about your coping styles. What a wonderful conversation over dinner. So here, here's uh, when the Louis have done this, and they, like Mike mentioned, they've done these uh, uh, parenting workshops all over the world, literally. And the, the distribution has come out pretty consistent. A majority of people, 55 to about 60%, are, what do you think? Avoiders. Very good. Uh, next is the overcompensators. And then a small percentage, about 10%, are surrenderers. Okay? So, fun fact for that coffee conversation you're going to have. All right, next slide. Okay. Life traps and core needs. The four maladaptive schema domains correspond to the four core needs. So that's what we looked at in the chart Mike had up. Without intervention, we are drawn to the familiar much more than to what is healthy. That is very important. I'm going to say it again. Without intervention, we are drawn to the familiar much more than to what is healthy. I'll give you an example. Who knows what a thermostat is? All right. So we want to set the thermostat at a certain degree, temperature, so that when when things kick in, it either heats up the house or it cools down the house, right? But that thermostat setting is set. And you know, in our relationships, it's usually set at what's familiar. So when we try to change, go, ah, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, doggone it. Or as spouses, we agree we're going to do this. So we try to move that thermostat, but you know what? It wants to go right back to what it's familiar with. It, even in our heads, we go, but that is so crazy. It is. But our go-to is not what's healthy. Our go-to is what's familiar. If you grew up in a household that was like being at a library... You know, and you marry a spouse whose family talks like this all the time. I recognize that laugh. I know who that... No, just kidding. But that's, you know, we're not familiar with that. So, you know, we're drawn to the way... I'm, I'm used to growing up in a library. That's why Grace would get so frustrated with me. You don't say anything. I mean, I grew up with, I mean, I have more siblings, but I really grew up with my dad and my twin brother. <laughs> Three guys. You don't even have to talk, and you feel like you had a great time together. <laughs> so just remember, our relationships are like a system. We, we stick to what we're familiar with, even if we want so much to change. Next slide. Okay, so, so, so this is why these distortions keep coming up for us, right? That's what's familiar. Those life traps are so familiar by the time we're adults. 
It triggers in an instant the interaction, that exasperation interaction. I'm going to interchangeably call e, uh, exasperation interactions EIs because there's way too many syllables. <laughs> but that's why this happens a lot for us. We don't even want it to happen and it happens. Next slide. So there, there it is, right? You know, that's on, on this side, the, the CENs, that's another acronym I'm going to use because more syllables. And then the maladaptive schemas on this side. Okay? And if we, you know, if we continue with the poor EIs, you know, instead of experiencing connection and acceptance, and I'm talking about our kids now, what they'll experience is disconnection and rejection. If, if we don't really work on it and focus on having healthy autonomy and performance, guess what? It doesn't say static. It, we're going to go towards impaired autonomy and performance, and so on and so forth. Next slide. Okay, I'm, I'm beating this into your head, right? Next slide. Wow, we're doing great on time. All right. So now we're going to go into the EIs, right? Like the this is the best part of the movie right here. So these, so what they've, uh, it, John and Karen did their own studies, and they came up with what they uh, have categorized as eight different EIs: belittling, perfectionistic and conditional, controlling, punitive, emotionally depriving and inhibiting, overprotective, pessimistic and overly permissive. Now, as we, we're going to go through each one of them to finish out, but again, don't worry about it. This is going to feel like a fire hydrant of information. We're, we're going to, this, the goal of this first class, create awareness. The Bible says God gives us a spirit of self-discipline, self-control. You can't have that until you become self-aware. That's why things happen over and over and over. We're not aware. The goal of today, create awareness. All right, let's do this. Okay, this is the thing to remember, and I'm going to keep saying this because I know you are all doing your best. There's a difference between occasional mistakes and exasperation interactions that come from a lifestyle. Okay? If you're the kind that beats yourself up, just remember this. We all make mistakes. What we're looking out for is a pattern, a lifestyle of these EIs. Next slide. So this is what belittling is. When parents make fun of their children, call them names, make derogatory remarks, disparage their looks, or humiliate them, they're going to feel belittled. Next slide. So here's what research... This one is amazing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Harvard Medical School. So this study highlighted that demeaning or belittling words contribute more to children's dysfunction than harsh physical punishment. I know, right? Wow. So here are some examples. Go to the next slide. This is one I think of on this one. I guess you're the only one in the family who's not academically minded, huh? Next slide. You know, to our sons, maybe... Next slide. Maybe it's this one. Big boys don't cry. Stop acting like a girl.
Next slide. Maybe to our daughters. Next slide. Crying doesn't work on me. Guess what? I said that many times to my daughter. My mistake. Way, way too many times. We're all guilty, right? Okay, perfection. So this is the second EI. Perfectionistic and conditional. All right, you're still with me, right? All right, I need to know that. Okay? All right. I'm insecure. I avoid conflict. Okay. (laughs) Perfectionistic and conditional. Children will be exasperated exasperated by their parents when they feel they can never measure up to a perfectionistic ideal. Next slide. Okay, here are some examples. Next slide. I can't stand it when you focus on your feelings. It makes you look weak. So... I guess I gotta be perfect and never show any emotions. Next slide. And next one. Do you have any idea how much we have to sacrifice for you? How do you think we feel when everyone else's kids are getting baptized, getting into Ivy League schools, coming in first in the swimming competition? I mean, you fill in the blank. And you're not. So, oh, back, back, back. So perfectionistic and control, uh, conditional, right? They're statements that convey, only if you do this, am I happy with you, right? Still with me? Okay. You guys are awesome. I know you're doing your best. Next slide. Controlling. Parents who exasperate their children in this way are generally negative and fearful. Hence, their need to control. They may be driven by the enmeshment life trap, in which case they will not permit their children to feel differently from them, but rather dictate how they should feel and think. So here are some examples. Next. You need to be loyal. Stop being rebellious by feeling differently. Do as I say. Let let me decide which extracurricular activity you should sign up for. I know what's best for you, so do what I tell you. Okay, hold it right here. So, in, you know, there's a word enmeshment in the definition. So enmeshment is when it's the, the opinion, the feelings, and the thoughts of the parent overrides the feelings and the thoughts of the child. So the idea is, you know, if I want to know how you feel, I'll tell you. So they're enme- the kids are enmeshed. It doesn't matter what they think or feel. And, and, and know this, REIs, our exasperation interactions may be connected, actually as a therapist, I know they're connected, to our own experience growing up. It doesn't come from thin air. So here, what's important for you to know is, in looking at this, there's no blame to be cast in creating awareness, okay? But... But you may be feeling a lot of different things now that we're almost towards the end. And you, you just need to know that you've probably been dealing with some things in your own life, in your own experiences, that now we're talking about you as a parent, and it can feel a little overwhelming, right? But it's okay. We're going to work through this together. All right? 
You're still with me, right? Because I'm getting a little insecure here. All right. Armando, you're with me? Amen, brother. I needed that. Okay. So next EI, punitive. You know that parents are exasperating with punitiveness when children feel that they are punished for everything they do, for everything they do wrong or repeatedly make, made to feel guilty for past mistakes. Parents who exasperate their children with such interactions show very little grace and probably grew up in such an environment themselves. Do you really think one apology will be good enough? You know, that, that's like ransom right there. Next. Next. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Just testing you guys. Stop crying and get happy or I'm going to spank you now. And, and this is important to know that it may be unintentional. We want our kids to obey, don't we? But how we communicate, the messages that we send you know, it can create an exasperation for our kids. Okay, so here's a movie. Let me kind of collect myself. Okay, so this is that original family we looked at, right? Um, so it's Christmas time now. Usually for all of us, that's the spirit of, you know, giving, loving, really warm and what you'll see in this you know the you know people cut down trees or they go to tree lots and they bring home their tree and start setting it up and it just creates this very exciting and fun atmosphere so i want you to watch the different exasperation interactions here around the christmas tree now before we show it i do want to say there is some uh, language in this but maybe that, you know, I, we left them in because it shows the intensity. Okay, so let's go ahead and watch that clip. Lies and she didn't need to every word of it. I didn't lie. You did. You lied every time you came into this house at 6.30. Well, 
the hospital. She's busy going to goddamn Spain and goddamn Portugal. Why should she care about mother by the balls out there? Maybe this is how they sit around and talk at the hospital, but we're not at the hospital. You never came to the hospital. I know that you're not at the hospital. I know that she didn't get a foot. And she couldn't come inside. She came to the hospital. She wouldn't have any foot fuckers in the hospital. She wouldn't have come to fuckers in the hospital. Okay, so before we move on, so did you see the EIs going on there? Um, mom struggles with perfectionistic and um, conditional. That, that one usually is concerned about what other people think of you. You see how she said, well, I had to find out from so-and-so. She felt embarrassed, right? So, so let, me, let me kind of go backwards a little bit. Um, um, coping styles. Did you see the different coping styles that each of them have? Who's the uh, overcompensator? Mom. She's going to fight you to the death. What's dad? Avoider. And, generally, and um, how about the son? What do you see? Blah, blah, blah. Fighter? Okay. Yeah, in this, in this particular clip, he was coping by counterattacking as well. But generally speaking, he's a surrenderer, if you, if you see the whole movie. Um, that's, that's the idea that we all have one predominant one. But if pushed hard enough, he was going to fight back too. Right? And then there's a reference to Buck. Buck is the favorite son of hers. Buck wouldn't have been in the hospital. Wow. Pulled out that card. So, you know, it kind of gives you a flavor, right? These movies, that's why John and Karen use these. They, they convey so much more about, they get the words off the page, so to speak. So let's go on. We've got a couple more, and, and then we'll be done. So the next EI, emotionally depriving and inhibiting. Parents who fall into this type of interaction either neglect their children emotionally or do not like, do not know how to talk about heart issues. Okay, so this one, kind of in my world as a therapist, I also, emotionally depriving and emotionally inhibiting, there are times as parents we can be emotionally unavailable. Okay, does that make sense? So let's look through some of these example statements, what it looks like. We know best, just listen and obey. Hold, hold it, hold it right here. So go back to that one. You know, and sometimes, again, with good intentions as parents, we can want our kids to obey. But the tendency in this EI is it's all about obeying. Uh, don't, don't deal with them emotions. You just obey. That's the sign you're doing good to me as a parent. 
Okay. Okay, go next. Next. Oh, right back. I didn't highlight this one. Okay, let me pick one. Okay, so the second one, it says, why are you so excited? Calm down. There's this idea that these parents have a hard time in their own lives dealing with emotions high or low. And so we almost put down our kids being super happy. You know, or we can't tolerate when they're super sad. You know, for me, uh, this one this one is challenging. Um, my daughter one time, this was a few years ago, she's 11 now, but a few years ago, um, you know, I, I like what I do. I'm a therapist. I save the world, so to speak. But um, she came up to me in the kitchen one time. She goes, Dad, why are you always so serious? Because life's serious. And that's what I felt like saying. But, you know, she, she is so full of life. Funny, happy-go-lucky. And sometimes, to be honest, it annoys the tar out of me. <laughs> We're watching a movie, and she has to do like a play-by-play. -play. And I just go, stop! Mm! Just look like, mm. You know, depriving them of being able to express emotions. We've got to be careful about that. Okay, next slide. Okay. Believe it or not, there was a Rocky Five. <laughs> What's it up to now? 24, 5,000? So, I guess in Rocky Four, he became champion of the whole world and knocked out the guy in Russia or something. Okay. Um, where Rocky V picks up is right after that. And he falls on these hard times. He's ruled medically unfit. He can't box anymore. He's had so many injuries. Then he comes back to America, and as it turns out, <laughs> he gets all his money taken from him, all his wealth. Because he's like, okay, I can't fight anymore, no big deal. But then he finds out he's bankrupt because of his accountant. And then he has to find something to fill him that he then neglects his son. Let's watch this clip.
So did you see his face? That's his son. I mean, that, that's that look of being neglected. Sorry. That's that look of being neglected, right? You know, Rocky just needed to find something for himself, so he focuses on Tommy, this new fighter, and he's, you know, doing incredible. And he kind of pushes off uh, uh, his responsibilities about being there for his son. And that last sort of picture of his son. So what happens is, we're going to look at another clip here, but what happens is the son's going to school. He's in this rough neighborhood now because the family's bankrupt, and so they're back to Philly where he sort of, his roots are. But his son starts getting picked on and bullied. And, you know, it continues to be where the, the dad really doesn't pay attention to him. But then he, uh, his son is able to get himself to a point where he actually deals with the bully. Um, so he eventually gets his revenge on the kid who stole his jacket. So let's watch this. That expression, right? You can read it. Emotionally deprived, emotionally inhibited. His dad's not connecting with him at all. He's so excited. You know, he got himself trained to be able to defend himself, and he's so excited. I got to tell dad. And that's what happens. Okay, we're going to move on here. So, overprotective. So, that's another EI. Parents who overprotect become excessively worried about. Their children for the smallest of issues. They create scenarios that are unrealistic and then convey as much to their children or at least react in such a manner that it would be obvious that they are, that they are overreacting. Next slide. Next. I can't believe that your friends hurt you. Who do they think they are? I'll deal with them. Give me their phone numbers. 
Next. Oh, okay. All right, let's go to the next. Pessimistic. Children become exasperated when they repeatedly hear that the glass is always half empty, not half full. If you were to ask the parents why they were being negative, their first reaction would be that they don't want their children to be unrealistic about life and make mistakes. Some examples. Don't admire anyone. They'll end up disappointing you. I know you're thinking about taking up that sport, but it's rough and you'll get injured and then your life will collapse. <laughs> okay. I love Finding Nemo. But, but this, op this is the opening scene to the movie. And this is the EI of being overprotective.
Okay, that, that was awesome. It's like, you don't have to go this year. Maybe five years? So, so with overly permissive, the, the challenge for our kids if we're, or I'm sorry, if we're overprotective, looking to the next one, uh, if we're overprotective, it's hard for our kids to feel, believe in themselves. It's hard for them to believe in themselves because we shelter them too much, okay? Uh, the next one is overly permissive. Um, believe it or not, that can also exasperate kids. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to run through it a little bit. Uh, you'll, all of these are in the book, but I want to share about a client that I have. He has, he's a high schooler, and he, he's a well-functioning, high-functioning kid, um, but it, he's a little frustrated because his parents think he's a genius. He's a, I'm sorry, he's a genius. And so whenever he's, you know, he's going to be a senior, he's going to graduate, he wants more direction. And every time he approaches his parents, they say, uh, we believe in you. You'll figure it out. I know, I know you're a smart kid. And he feels exasperated because they're not providing enough guidance. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to the next slide. I want to make sure we get through all these. Next, next, next. Okay. Let's show this. So this is, this is now at a point where it is a prolonged exasperation between Rocky and his son. And at this point, the, the group of kids he hangs around with, they are the bullies. And I want you to just pay attention to how this prolonged exasperation has affected the relationship between Rocky and his son.
So it, in the relationship, it eventually led to Rocky just being overly permissive, just let him do whatever he wanted. But that expression for Rocky was sobering when he says, when, he first, when his son first stormed out of the living room, he turns to his wife and goes, what I do? You know, that's how prolonged that the exasperation had been going on. He didn't even, uh, what just happened here? Now, I want to say, obviously, with the son, did he talk the way he should have with his dad? Did he interact the way he should have? No. Obviously not. And obviously, that's something that eventually has to be addressed. But the intent in looking at that is, hey, that's what it can lead to if we're exasperating our kids. Okay? So we're going to end on a high note. Um, this is a great movie, prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. This scene, the main character is a mom. You know, it's a mom and a dad and their big family. I forget how many kids. But she's at home, and she, she just is amazing at not exasperating her kids, even when things happen. Do things happen? So let's watch this clip, and we'll, we'll close here.
love that face, right? So we're ending on a high note. Thank you for coming. We'll see you guys next week.